The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory, Glory to, to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of your faces. If you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I was on staff here for four years as an assistant pastor, but then for the last two years, I've been over across the city at UT where I've been our college pastor, our REF campus minister with students at the University of Texas. It really is a joy and honor to be back with y'all today. And today is Ascension Sunday. It's Ascension Sunday, this day where we celebrate the last of the four major salvific events in the life of Jesus. So we have the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and now today, the ascension. But let's be honest. I mean, the ascension is the one that no one really cares about, right? I mean, uh, it's kind of like the fourth Indiana Jones movie, or uh, it's like the fifth Rocky movie, or it's sort of like the magician's nephew in Narnia. I mean, really, like, who cares, right? And, but this morning, I want to actually convince you that you really should care a lot about the ascension. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are tired of listening to the voices in our own heads and the voices in the world, and so we would rather listen to your voice. And so we pray that you would speak this morning to all of us, to those who come into this room feeling guilty and ashamed, those of us who feel tired and burdened, to those of us who feel weak, to those who are disappointed and disillusioned and doubtful, to all of us would you speak through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So for the past seven or eight months now, my kids have been obsessed with the Disney movie Frozen. And the reason Frozen is their favorite movie is because it's their only movie. It is the only movie they have seen, and so as far as they know, it's the only movie that exists. And we're trying to keep it that way for as long as possible. So people will come up to us and they'll say, your kids love Frozen, have they seen Frozen 2? And we will say, do not tell them about Frozen 2. But the truth is that dad loves Frozen as well. And the reason I love Frozen is because Frozen takes place in an enchanted world. In an enchanted world, in this kingdom in northern Europe, 
uh, sometime in the Middle Ages, in this world of, of castles and kings and queens, and even a church. It might be the only Disney movie with a church in it, and that is where the movie begins. It begins inside a cathedral with a choir on Coronation Day as Elsa, the main character, is crowned Queen of Arendelle. But we no longer live in a world like this. As the philosopher Charles Taylor puts it, we live not in the age of enchantment, but of disenchantment. We live in a world where kings and queens and magic exist only in Disney movies, and a world in where cathedrals have been turned into museums. And that is why, in spite of myself, I was a little fascinated by the coronation of Charles III as King of England a couple of weeks ago, because England is the last European country to hold coronations, and there had not been a coronation in Europe for 71 years, and yet for one day, Europe was thrown back into the enchanted world as a king was crowned inside of a church. And this morning, that is the ascension. The ascension is coronation day, in which Jesus of Nazareth, this son of a carpenter, is crowned as king of the cosmos. And so why do we need Ascension Sunday? We need it to wake us up and to re-enchant us and to remind us that even if we do not see it or believe it or feel it, we still live in a kingdom. And so two points this morning. First, the promises of the king, and then second, the people of the king. What promises does the king make to us on the Ascension? And then what, what types of people is he seeking to make us into? So first of all, the promises of the king. So anytime a king is crowned or, or a ruler is elected, what do they do? They make promises, right? And on his coronation, Jesus makes promises to us, his people, as well. And the first thing we see that he promises to us is his power. He promises to us his power. And we see this, first of all, in how Jesus leaves the earth. Because as one commentator says, I mean, Jesus did not have to leave the earth and leave the disciples in this way. I mean, there are lots of occasions after his resurrection, think about the road to Emmaus, where Jesus simply chooses to suddenly disappear from the sight of all the people. And he could have done that here, but here he doesn't disappear like a ghost, but he deliberately chooses to go up into heaven very publicly and very visibly. And the text emphasizes this. What what does it say? Verse 9, as they were looking on, he ascended. Verse 10, while they were gazing on. And so why does Jesus ascend in this very public and very visible way? Because again, it's coronation day. And for one day, God wants to peel back the veil and allow the whole world to see who Jesus really is. And so he doesn't disappear, he ascends. But we also see his power not just in how he goes, but in where he goes. Because where does Jesus go? He goes to heaven. And to see this and why it's important, we need to unlearn a lot of our ideas about heaven because a lot of them are pretty bad. See, most of us think of heaven as a place. We say heaven's a place. But in the Bible, the Bible thinks of heaven primarily as a person. Because heaven is where God is. And what makes heaven heaven is God. I mean, heaven is the place where God rules and God directs, and what God wants to happen, happens. I mean, heaven is like the control room of the universe. 
And heaven isn't far away either. We think of it as far away, but in the Bible, heaven is actually like right there. It's right there. It's like a theater. The universe is a theater. And so first of all, you have the earth, which is the stage, which is where man is, and that's where we can see. But then secondly, you have heaven, which is the backstage, and it is what we do not see, but it is where God rules and directs the play. And there is a curtain and a veil separating them, but that veil is pretty thin. And so at times, like today, God tears back this curtain, he tears back this veil so that we can see into the backstage and see what is actually going on. And so the disciples see Jesus go there. They see Jesus go into heaven, into backstage, into the control room, and they see that from now on, Jesus is the one who is directing the play. But it's equally important to see here that Jesus, as king, he doesn't just promise us his power, but he also promises us his presence. And this is hard, it's hard for us to hold in mind this tension, because in our world, oftentimes those who are most powerful are also those who are most distant. But Jesus is saying, I'm not a king who is far off or out of touch, but I'm a king who is with us and present in our lives. And again, this is surprising, because on, this, on, this, on the surface, the ascension doesn't seem to highlight Jesus' presence, but his absence. Because what happens? I mean, the disciples are left looking up as he leaves, and it feels to them and to us as if Jesus has gone away. And many of you feel that this morning. Like, you walk into these doors feeling as if God has gone away. But as John Calvin says, the ascension actually makes Jesus even more present than before. He says, think about the end of Matthew. Jesus promises to the disciples, the last words he speaks to them, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the, of the age. And Calvin says, the ascension is actually how Jesus makes good on this promise to be with us always. How? Well, think about it. As long as Jesus is on earth, he can only be in one place at one time. He is confined, he is limited by space and, and, and by time. But heaven exists outside of space and ex- exists outside of time. And so by going to heaven, Christ is no longer confined and he is no longer limited by space and by time. And so he can be present in all places and to all people at all times. It's kind of like in Star Wars, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, he's fighting Darth Vader, and what does he say? He says, if you kill me, I will become more powerful than you can ever imagine. And something like that is happening here, but with one major difference. Because unlike the Jedis in Star Wars, Jesus, after his death and resurrection, doesn't become like a hologram. And that's what we usually think, that after his resurrection, Jesus is like this little ghost that kind of flitters around. No, but here we, say, we see that he goes into heaven as a human, as a human with a human body. And to the church throughout the ages, everyone has said throughout the ages, this is really important because it means not only is the king present to us at all times and in all places, but he is present to us as human to human. He is present as one who is like us. 
And again, when we think about royals, I mean, again, we think of people who are out of touch. And this is actually what made you know, Princess Diana so inspiring, and because she was so relatable, and she felt like one of the people. And there was this story about her going to, to the hospital in Harlem, and it was in the 90s, at, at the sort of peak of the AIDS ec- epidemic, and she went and she hugged this boy and touched this boy with AIDS. And that's a beautiful thing. But at the end of the day, Diana still left the hospital. She still flew back to London and resumed and returned to her palace and remained this beautiful and wealthy and royal person. But Jesus is not like that. Listen to what Karl Barth says. He says, we've all heard stories about the king who who leaves his castle and goes down into the city to see what's going on, uh, dressed as a commoner or as a beggar so he can blend in with all the people and no one will recognize him. But then eventually, he always goes back to the castle, he puts his crown and his robe back on and resumes his royal life. But that is not Jesus. Jesus is the king who puts on our clothes and never takes them off. Like, he is the king who returns to the castle always and forever dressed as a beggar. Dressed as this one who dwelled among sinners, always and forever like us. And what that means is that right now, in heaven, in the life of the Trinity, there's a human body. Like a human body with scars in his hands and wounds in his side. That there's a human body in heaven that knows and that remembers. That there's a human body who remembers what it was like to be wrapped inside the amniotic fluid of his mother in heaven now. That there's a human body who remembers what it was like to be born and to be a child and to grow up and to go through puberty and to be a teenager and to leave the house. That there's a human body in heaven who remembers what it was like to be tempted, who remembers what it was like to suffer, who remembers what it was like to be alone in the wilderness and in the desert right now in heaven. That there's a human body that remembers what it felt like to to stand by a grave and grieve over the death of his best friend. That remembers what it was like to be rejected and abandoned by his friends and all the people that he loved. And that remembers what it was like to have his body broken and to become disabled, have his body decay, and to be left for dead on a cross. Like, this is the king who is now present to you, wherever you go, and for your whole life. Like, not someone who is far off and out of touch. Like, not a hologram and not a ghost, but a human body who knows and who remembers. And so those are the facts of the ascension, and they're the promises of the ascension. That Jesus as king is both more powerful than we could believe or imagine, and yet he is more present than we see or we feel. And so not if those things are true, but because they are true. Let's ask what sorts of people this king might be seeking to make us into, okay? So that's point two, the people of the king. Because in the passage, we see the focus change from Jesus as the ascended Lord to, starting in verse 12, the disciples and the king's people. So these very ordinary men, you know, Peter and John and James 
and the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, like these are then the people that the rest of the passage focuses on, like people like us, okay? And it's important to see that, I mean, the ascension is a huge day in the life of these people. And really the ascension is this hinge day in which, in which the one chapter of their life is closing and another chapter of their life is opening and Jesus is sending them out into the world. And today is actually a hinge day, and really May is a hinge month in the life of our church, in, in which we too are, are saying goodbye to a lot of people, right? And this morning we're honoring and saying goodbye to our graduating high school seniors and our graduating college seniors, and we too are sending them out into the world. And I don't know if y'all have ever heard of this singer named Taylor Swift, but last year she was asked to give a commencement speech to college seniors graduating from NYU. And so Taylor Swift, who again you might have heard of, stood up on a podium at Yankee Stadium, and here's what she said. She said, it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now, and how to act in order to get to where you want to go. And I have some good news for you. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. And that's really profound, because in one sentence, Taylor Swift actually perfectly captures what it feels like to live in the disenchanted world, like in which there is no king, there are no spiritual forces. It is both incredibly exhilarating, but it is incredibly burdensome for the same reasons. And again, it's exhilarating because now it's all up to you. Like, you have the power. There's no final authority. There's no king. Really, it's like in that cinematic masterpiece, Home Alone 2, uh, where Kevin McAllister, you'll remember, his family is traveling to Miami for Christmas. I don't know why you would want to do that, but that is what they do. And so they're traveling to Miami for Christmas, but Kevin gets on the wrong plane, of course. And he gets off at LaGuardia, and he looks out on the Manhattan skyline, and he realizes, my family's in Florida, but I'm in New York. My family is in Florida, and I'm in New York. And again, this is what it feels like to be in the disenchanted world. I mean, it's life without parents, it's life without authority, it's life without a king. And so like Kevin, we are free to walk around, to walk the streets of Manhattan or the streets of San Francisco or D.C. or Austin or Denver or wherever and do whatever we want. I mean, we are free. I mean, we're free to pursue our own dreams and our own desires. We're free to make up our rules and our agendas. We're free to create meaning and a sense of purpose and a sense of identity on our own. And again, let's be honest, it's pretty fun. But after a while, it's burdensome and it's exhausting because, again, as Taylor Swift said, it's all up to you. And so like Kevin McAllister, time passes, you try everything there is to do and to try in New York City, and you end up tired and all alone and you just want to go home. And so what the ascension again holds out for us is this different kind of life where we do not belong to ourselves, but we actually belong to a king. And so what might this kind of life look like for us? Well, two things. A life in which we belong to the king, it will mean, first of all, submitting to the king's rule, and then second, delighting in the king's presence. Look, let's look at those. Submitting to the king's rule, because that's what we see happen in our passage. 
And this transformation happens in the life of the disciples from the beginning of the passage to the end. Because look back at the beginning of the passage. Uh, We see at the beginning that they want to do what they want to do. And we see this in verse 6. It says, when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Which is to say, will you give us what we want now? And Jesus says, no. No. Uh, Verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so what is he saying? He's saying, I'm the king. God has given me all power to carry out his rule, and I'm bringing about his kingdom and not yours. And so then what does he as the king begin to do? Well, he begins to give the disciples orders. I mean, he says, look, he says, look, soon, here's what's going to happen. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And then here's where you're going to go. You're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to again go to Judea and, and Samaria and to all the region around Jerusalem, and you're going to go further and further out, eventually to the ends of the world. And they do it. Like the disciples really and actually submit to his rule. I mean, because at the end of the passage, where do the disciples go? Verse 12, they go to Jerusalem like he told them to do. And then in verse 14, when they get there to Jerusalem, what do they do? They gather together in the upper room and they wait patiently on the word of God. And it says they pray continually. Like continually, they're listening to God and waiting for him to direct their life. And so if we too are to become a people of the king, we must, like them, stop seeking our own kingdom and start to seek his. And like them, we must stop going where we want to go, when we want to go, and start going where he tells us to go. And like him, we need to move from a life of planning to a life of praying, from from a life of impatience to a life of patience and waiting on God. From a life of controlling and scheming and and managing and tight-fisting our life to a life of being open-handed and to trust what he has for us. So that's the first thing. Becoming people of the king means submitting to the king's rule. But here's the second thing, and it's delighting in the king's presence. Delighting in the king's presence. Because again, the good news of the ascension is that the king has gone into heaven so he can be more present with you, not less. So that he can be with you always wherever you go. But the ascension also promises us something else amazing. And here it is. Not only does the ascension make God more present to us, but it makes us present to God. Like, God descends so that we may then ascend. And and, and this is what we see in our Colossians passage. That is exactly what Paul says. He says, you have ascended. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I mean, this is staggering. What he's saying is that because Christ has taken a human body into heaven, and because your human body has been united to his through faith and through baptism, that means that your human body 
has also passed into the life of the Trinity. And that right now, in some mysterious way, you too are seated at the right hand of God. That it is simultaneously true that you are present right here in this room in Austin, Texas, and yet in a mysterious but real way, you are also seated at the right hand of God. And this is hard for us to wrap around our, our minds around, and so that is why we have this table. Like, this is why we have this table of the king that we come to each and every week. Because every time we come to it, what do we say? We say, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Because what we believe is that when we take communion, we are ascending from this earthly table to the heavenly table. And in a very mysterious but real way, we are eating and drinking and feasting with God and at the table of the king until the day when his table actually returns and comes here to earth. So that's how we begin on Sundays, at least, to wrap our heads around this reality that we too are seated at God's right hand. But this is a reality that's true not only on Sundays, but in every day of our life. And so I want us to imagine that when you wash the dishes, you are seated at God's right hand. And that when you enter a classroom or a college auditorium, you are seated at God's right hand. And when you play on the floor with your children or your grandchildren, you are ascended and seated at God's right hand. That if Paul is to be believed, even now, you have died, he says, and your life, your whole life, is hidden with Christ in God. And so I want us to imagine that we're in the presence of God, not just on Sundays, but on Mondays through Saturdays, but not just to imagine this reality, but actually to delight in it, and to delight in being in the presence of the King, and to actually hunger and long for his presence, and to really believe that there is nothing better than to be with the King, to dwell in his house, and to be seated at his table and to see his face. That that is the best that you can do. And so let's close and think about what that might look like through thinking about uh, one man who really believed this. Because if there was ever a man who lived in an enchanted world, and if there was ever a man who lived like they belonged not to themselves, but actually to a king, it was Tim Keller. And Tim already prayed and talked about Tim Keller in his prayer. Uh, As many of you know, Keller was a Presbyterian pastor and author and the center of really a revival in New York City, in Manhattan in the 90s and early 2000s. And and Keller ascended in death to be with Jesus this past Friday. And there really may never be another Keller, uh, someone who possessed this rare combination of intellect but also impact and influence while also maintaining and upholding until the very end, his integrity. Uh, Because, I mean, let's be honest, most of the people that we put on pedestals and that we give power and influence to, I mean, they end up disappointing us and the stories leak out. But in the case of Keller, since his death, the only stories that have leaked about him are stories saying that he was actually better and gentler and kinder and more gracious than we even realized. 
And everyone knows about Keller, you know, influential Keller, and knows about, you know, the New York City Keller and, and Keller as the best-selling author, Keller writing op-eds for the New York Times, and really having the ear of, you know, not only the church, but the academy and, and the world. We all know that Keller. Um, but no one ever talks about Keller as a pastor in Hopewell, Virginia, <laughs> where he preached three times a, a week for 10 years through a backwoods congregation that no one cares about. I mean, parents, if your graduating senior say to you, I want to move to Hopewell, Virginia, you will say you are not doing that. But Jesus, the ascended Lord, told Keller to head to Hopewell, Virginia, and he did it for 10 years. And I think the reason for all of this, I mean, this reason that Keller never sought influence, I mean, but he really did go where, where you know, he was told to go, and that the reason, you know, again, he was able to maintain his integrity to the very end is because, again, he really believed that he belonged to a king. And that's why he was obsessed with fairy tales. You know, if you read him, he's always quoting from Narnia or from Lord of the Rings, because all of these stories of kings and queens and heroes, like, spoke deeply of him, to him because they reminded him of the enchanted world, and they reminded him of his longing to be with the king. And it is that longing to be with the king that Keller possessed that really convicted me this last week as I read the updates on Twitter from Keller's family as he was declining and passing away. Uh, The day before he died, I want you to listen to what they wrote. They wrote, today, dad is being discharged from the hospital to receive hospice care at home. And over the past few days, he has asked us to pray with him often. And he expressed many times through prayer his desire to go home to be with Jesus. And so his family is very sad because we all wanted more time with him. And we know that he has very little time at this point. But in prayer, he said two nights ago, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. And I'm thankful for my family that loves me. And I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I cannot wait to see Jesus, and so send me home. Uh, That is a man unlike me, and I imagine unlike many of you, who more than anything else really just longed to be with the king. And now he is. And so what about us? You know, there have been a lot of tributes the past few days on the internet um, in honor of Keller, and, and again calling on the church to really take up his mantle and follow his lead out into the world. And you can read all these online, but the best tribute I've read comes from a man named Jake Meter, because I believe that his tribute captures best the essence of who Keller was. Uh, Also, the the love that that Keller had for Tolkien and these fairy tales and the enchanted world, and also the essence of the ascension and what Jesus says to us today. So I want you to listen to his words as we close. He says, my prayer is that the passing of this giant would be an occasion for reminding us to return to our first love, to persevere in that love, and to labor together so that the message Tim shared so frequently and faithfully would go on echoing in the world entire. And so throw open the doors of the church, go into the streets, proclaim the good news to everyone, that they too are invited to the great feast to come at the end of all things. For the words written by Tolkien in Lord of the Rings after the fall of Sauron are true in our world as well. 
quote, You were brought out of the fire to the king. He has tended you, and he now awaits you. You shall eat and drink with him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son is indeed the Ascended Lord, and that right now, in some mysterious way, even as we come to the table, we are sending to sit at your right hand. Lord, teach us to more and more long to be with you, to set aside our little plans and our little agendas and our little kingdoms, to truly listen to your voice and to go where you would lead us. Lord, if that's ever going to happen, it's not going to happen naturally and we're going to need a lot of help, and we're going to need your spirit. So send them to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.